This is the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, episode number 10. 10 talking points on canine Addison's disease. Welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, where it's all about small animal emergency and critical care. Primary survey, secondary survey, analgesia, fluids, shock, trauma. We've got it covered. And now, here's your host. Never afraid to bring the jibber-jabber, it's Shailen Jassani. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast with me, Shailen Jassani. Really glad that you can join me once again today. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about canine hypoadrenocorticism, or Addison's disease. But before that, as always, I'd like to start with some thank yous. Firstly, thank you to those of you who have taken part in the two surveys that I sent around via email and on Facebook, in which I asked you about um, me wanting to get an ECC slogan printed onto some clothing. As you know, I'd asked you to rank six of the suggestions that people had made for an ECC slogan. And I can let you know that the votes are in. And in second place, the slogan was ECC, Excellence, Caring, Compassion. But the winner was ECC, Anytime, Anywhere, Always There. So thanks very much for that. And I will be taking that idea forward in the near future And we'll let you know via email and on social media when I have some ECC clothing that you might want to buy. And of course, as always, I also want to say thank you to the people that have taken the time to rate and or review the podcast in iTunes. This week, my thank yous have a real international flavor. So thank you to JKL99 from Canada, to Curl from Australia, and to VetKG from the UK. Okay, so let's get on with today's episode on canine hypoadrenocorticism, or what I will refer to for the rest of the podcast as Hypo-A. Now you'll know that these podcasts are not meant to take the place of CPD presentations where we go through all of a topic in detail from beginning to end. So what I'm going to do is to talk about this disease in general terms from an ECC perspective where we are most concerned by dogs presenting in an acute crisis. But I'm planning on picking out 10 points of interest or things that are especially noteworthy, rather than just repeating the information that you could find in many standard resources. And I will, of course, include the references to a few of the papers that contributed to my thought processes in this podcast, so that um, you you can see what those papers are. And some of them at least are available to you open access online. In this podcast, I'm really talking about dogs with naturally occurring primary hypo-A, which is thought to be due to immune-mediated destruction of the adrenal cortices, which, as you know, are responsible for secreting endogenous glucocorticoids, the main one being cortisol, and mineralocorticoids, the main one being aldosterone. Cortisol is crucial for the normal function of a wide variety of organs and systems in the body, 
including hemodynamics and the cardiovascular system, as well as metabolism, inflammation and immunological function and gastrointestinal integrity. Aldosterone promotes sodium chloride and water absorption and potassium and hydrogen ion excretion. And essentially most of the clinical findings in this disease can be attributed to deficiencies in these hormones. Now it goes without saying that hypo-A is a pretty complex disorder and by necessity I will be either simplifying or generalizing some of the detail for the purposes of this podcast. Right, so let's get into my 10 talking points. So for my first point, where else to start than by reminding you that Addison's disease is often referred to as the great pretender. It is a complex disease that can have a variable course affecting different dogs to a greater or lesser degree and presenting in a whole variety of ways with signs and findings that may be related to a number of organs or systems. I think it's probably fair to say that if there is any such thing as a classical Addisonian, then it's probably the dog with recurrent, mild to moderate, potentially self-limiting gastrointestinal signs. Of course, these dogs will often have received fluid therapy as part of their management, and in some practices they will have had glucocorticoids as well because they are still dispensed routinely to dogs with GI signs. The dog then gets better and the diagnosis of hypo-A remains unmade. But really the key take-home message is that you should have a wide index of suspicion for hypo-A and keep this disorder on your differential diagnosis list for a wide patient population. This then brings me on to my second point, which leads on from the fact that hypo-A is such a sneaky disease. As with humans, it is suspected that there is a genetic basis to canine hypo-A. And this suspicion is based on epidemiological studies and pedigree analysis. There is currently work underway trying to better understand this genetic basis in the hope that a genetic test for the disease risk can be developed. Such a test would allow us to identify dogs at increased risk and to enroll them into a screening program. Furthermore, it could be used to inform breeding strategies and reduce the incidence of hypo-A in susceptible dog breeds. Out of interest, numerically the disease is diagnosed most often in crossbreed dogs, but breeds that are known to be at increased risk include, but are not limited to, the Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever, the Portuguese water dog, the standard poodle, the bearded collie and various terrier breeds. Anyway, so genetic testing is hopefully for the future. But for now, let's move on to my third point. My third point relates to so-called atypical hypoadrenocorticism. As you know, one of the findings that may alert you to the fact that the dog you are treating might have Addison's disease is finding electrolyte abnormalities and more specifically hyperkalemia and or hyponatremia. But you will also remember, I'm sure, that not every patient with hypo-A actually has these electrolyte abnormalities. And this includes dogs that are having a crisis. So it is not actually correct to say that the dog you are dealing with does not have hypo-A just because their plasma electrolytes are within reference intervals. And these hypo-A cases with normal electrolytes have been referred to as atypical. 
the traditional explanation for what is going on with these cases is that the part of the adrenal cortices which makes glucocorticoids, that part has been sufficiently destroyed that these dogs now have clinically significant cortisol deficiency. But the zona glomerulosa where the mineralocorticoids are made is still relatively intact. And this means that these dogs still have enough aldosterone to maintain normal plasma electrolytes. At some point in the days, weeks or months after diagnosis, they will develop electrolyte abnormalities and so they need to be monitored regularly for this. So that is the traditional explanation. But in 2014, there was a paper published looking at aldosterone levels in dogs with hypoA that included some that had so-called atypical hypoA. And I will, of course, include the reference in the show notes. And this paper was actually published in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine, which has recently been made open access online by Wiley, which is obviously fantastic. And so you can read and critique the paper yourself. I'm not going to analyze it from an evidence-based perspective. But what they reported was that in these atypical cases, contrary to the traditional explanation, aldosterone levels are actually not normal but low. And remember I said that traditionally has been suggested that the reason electrolytes are normal in these cases is because they still have adequate aldosterone. Of course, if this paper is correct, then it does beg the question of how come, despite having low aldosterone, these so-called atypical cases still have normal plasma electrolyte levels? And that is a question to which the answer is not yet known. There are some speculative suggestions, but I don't think we need to get into that realm of speculation for this podcast. Point four on my list for today is the hypoglycemia that may occur in dogs with hypoA. You will, I'm sure, remember that hypoA is one of the differentials for hypoglycemia. Now, I don't mind admitting that until a few years ago, I incorrectly used to think that this hypoglycemia in hypoA was always in the mild to moderate range if it was present. And certainly, I used to think that it would not be severe enough as to actually cause seizures in these patients. But then a few years ago, I came to realize that that was not true. So if you are treating a dog with clinically significant hypoglycemia, including one that is seizuring, then Addison's disease should definitely be on your list until another diagnosis has been made. Actually, I should also say that given the widespread effects of cortisol, hypoA can cause dogs to have neuromuscular signs, including seizures, that are not due to hypoglycemia but due to hypocortisolemia. So if you have an Addisonian dog and and that dog is showing neuromuscular signs, it could be due to hypoglycemia. It could be due to just the lack of cortisol and the consequences of that. Or of course, it could be due to a combination of both. Another interesting scenario is if you see a dog that presents collapsed after exercise. This could, of course, be an Addisonian dog and that dog may or may not have hypoglycemia. If the dog has hypoglycemia, of course, you need to also consider differentials such as an insulinoma or so-called working dog hypoglycemia. I don't want to overcomplicate things here, and there's lots of different scenarios that we could get into, but it is just a reminder about the sneaky nature of this disease and about the need to always keep it in the back of your mind. Right, point five. 
So the point five is about the bradycardia that can occur in dogs with hypo-A. The first thing to say is that not all dogs that are having a crisis will be bradycardic. Remember that if the dog is hypoperfused, hypovolemic, shocky um, on presentation, then we would typically expect these dogs to be tachycardic. And some hypo-A dogs are actually tachycardic. But one of the things you need to be alert um, to is that the dog, as I said, should be tachycardic. But what if you find that the dog has a heart rate that for that individual dog you consider to be normal? Well, basically what we're saying there is that you should be on the lookout for an inappropriately normal heart rate in a shocky dog. The other point to make about the bradycardia is that I think when people are thinking about bradycardia in in hypo-A, their mind instantly goes to hyperkalemia as the cause. And this is not a bad thing. It's not the wrong thing because it makes complete sense that you should be thinking of that. But there are dogs that are having an Addisonian crisis in which, despite an absolute or relative bradycardia, they may only have mild hyperkalemia or indeed be normokalemic. So it is important that we realize that there are several other potential factors that are at play when it comes to the heart rate of an Addisonian dog. Other factors that may act to slow the heart rate include the cortisol deficiency. Without enough cortisol, the heart may not be able to respond to the positive chronotropic effects of endogenous catecholamines, which, as you remember, is the compensatory response to hypervolemia. Cardiac hypoxia from hypoperfusion may be involved. The hypoglycemia that I referred to earlier can also lower the heart rate if it is sufficiently severe. And some of these patients may have moderate to severe hypothermia, although that is not as common in dogs. Um, And then there are a number of other possible causes of high vagal tone in these dogs that could also lower the heart rate. So the basic take-home message is that While the hyperkalemia is probably the main thing, it is not the only problem that can affect the heart rate in these patients. My next point, point six, relates to confirming the diagnosis of hypo-A. The first thing to say is that in the past, when I have been talking about this, I would always say that in the emergency setting, we cannot confirm this diagnosis and that we need to make our treatment decisions especially with respect to whether or not to give an exogenous corticosteroid, we need to make that decision on the basis of how high our index of suspicion is. But I am aware that it is now possible to get in-house cortisol analyzers and that some practices have these. I don't know how widespread it is, so if you do have one in your practice, I would love to hear about it and love to hear your experiences. I also want to sort of point out that I have no information um, about the validation and the reliability of in-house cortisol analyzers. And again, if anyone listening wants to fill me in, that would be great. IDEX also do a SNAP cortisol test. As far as I'm aware, there are no published clinical studies looking at validating that test. And the data produced by IDEX itself remains the only information But again, I'm not sure about that. So if I'm wrong, do feel free to let me know. Now, the reason I wanted to mention this is that the ACTH stimulation test remains the definitive way of diagnosing hypo-A. And if these in-house analyzers are reliable, 
then you could be doing this in your practice. Remember that nowadays people generally wait for one hour between the pre and post ACTH cortisol samples, so it's a pretty short period of time. But also remember that fluid therapy is the first priority in these cases. But if you do want to give some steroid before you have finished doing the ACTH stimulation tests, then use dexamethasone. And of course, this applies whether you are collecting samples to send away or you're planning on running them in-house. Off the therapeutic steroids that are clinically available, dexamethasone is the only one that does not cross-react with the cortisol assay, which is why we can use it, but none of the others. The other thing to remember is that in recent years, <clears throat> there have been publications suggesting that the dose of ACTH we need to administer to perform the test is actually lower than what has traditionally been done. Adrenal stimulation can be achieved using a so-called low-dose ACTH stimulation test, which potentially saves the pet carer some money and also reduces wastage of ACTH, which can be in short supply at times. If you've not come across, if you're not familiar with the low-dose protocol, then do have a look in you know, relatively recent up-to-date drug formularies, for example, to see what the low-dose protocol is. Okay, so point seven is closely linked to the last point. There are at least two published studies looking at the potential use of a single resting plasma cortisol level as a way of screening for hypo-A. I will include these two references in the show notes. And one of these papers was published in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine last year, actually. And as I mentioned before, this journal is now freely available, open access online. So these studies suggest that if a sick dog has plasma cortisol greater than 2 micrograms per deciliter, which is approximately 55 millimoles per liter, then hypo-A is very unlikely. On the flip side, this diagnosis is very likely in a sick dog that has plasma cortisol less than 1 microgram per deciliter or 28 millimoles per liter. A sick dog with plasma cortisol greater than 2 micrograms per deciliter or 55 millimoles per liter would be considered not to have this disease. A sick dog with plasma cortisol less than 2 micrograms per deciliter or 55 moles, millimoles per liter would need an ACTH stimulation test performed to resolve this because it has a poor predictive value below this cutoff. Now bear in mind that each reference laboratory and indeed in-house analyzer will likely have its own cutoffs for resting cortisol. The other thing I should say is that as always I will make a link available through which you can download a transcript of this podcast so if everything I've just said about what the cutoffs are was lost in translation um, you can revert, refer to the transcript and refresh yourself on that. But what I wanted to say is that from my point of view given that a single plasma cortisol measurement cannot definitively achieve the diagnosis and bearing in mind the importance of making this diagnosis definitively then the role of a single plasma cortisol measurement is perhaps really tenuous in patients that have moderate to severe illness, which, as I mentioned before, are really the ones that ECC folk are most concerned with. In a practice with access to in-house cortisol measurement, 
you know, you could run both a one-off measurement and an ACTH stimulation test. And I guess from my point of view, while the initial pre-ACTH cortisol level would be interesting, I don't think I would stop at that. And I would want to go ahead and do the ACTH stimulation test. So for me, in an emergency patient, the ACTH is still what a stimulation test is still what I would aim to do. But I can see scenarios in which, for example, financial costs or lack of availability of synthetic ACTH may mean that we have to go with a single cortisol measurement in the first instance. Ultimately, doing the ACTH stimulation test is more expensive and there can also be issues with availability of ACTH preparations. That said, I do think, and I imagine there is consensus on this, that as Addison's is a lifelong and potentially life-threatening disease, we should be aiming to do the most definitive diagnostic test we can to rule out the condition. However, as measuring a single resting plasma cortisol level is undoubtedly cheaper than an ACTH stimulation test, then cortisol measurement may well have a role as an affordable screening test in dogs in whom there is some suspicion of Addison's on the basis of history or clinical findings. The suspicion is not considered sufficient to warrant the expense of an ACTH stimulation test, but a cheaper screening test is considered entirely reasonable. If the test result is not supportive of the disease, but the patient continues to prompt suspicion, then an ACTH stimulation test can be performed going forward. Nevertheless, given that 30% of dogs, according to literature, present in an acute crisis which could prove fatal without timely intervention, I would encourage a low threshold for performing an ACTH stimulation test, reserving the single quarters goal screening for just a minority of cases. Right, so that's enough of that. Let's move on to point eight. Point eight is about fluid therapy. As I mentioned before, the first priority in the stabilization of a dog that's having an Addisonian crisis is to start intravenous fluid therapy using a bolus resuscitation strategy initially and then moving on to a lower rate infusion. I'm not going to say any more than that because, as I mentioned in the last episode, I'm trying to take a break from talking about fluid therapy for a while. Having said that, one chestnut that I do have to mention is our old friend, the debate about whether to use Hartman's buffered lactated ringer solution or Normosol R in these patients or to use 0.9% sodium chloride. The arguments for and against each category in dogs with HypoA are very similar to those in block cats. So if you haven't listened to the episode that I did on fluid choice in block cats, then do be sure to go and listen to that episode. It was episode number four, and I will link to it in the show notes, or you can find it at veteccsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash four. One of the main differences between these two patient populations, though, is that dogs with hypo-A are typically hyponatremic and will most likely have been that way to some degree or another for a period of time. We do need to try and not correct their sodium level too quickly as this can lead to neurological complications that can potentially be irreversible 
and result in mortality. Now, in reality, trying to carefully manipulate plasma sodium concentration is one of those things, I think, where textbooks, descriptions, and what actually happens in real patients are often quite different. But that said, you'll remember, I'm sure, that the sodium concentration of 0.9% sodium chloride is 154 millimoles per litre, which is isotonic for a normal healthy dog. The sodium concentration of Hartmann's is around 131, uh, and for Normosol R and Plasmalite 148, the last time I checked, it was around 140 millimoles per litre. Some dogs having a hypoA crisis have normal plasma sodium or perhaps mild hyponatremia, but for a significant number, we are talking about moderate to severe hyponatremia uh, with plasma sodium levels that could be between, let's say, 110 to 130 millimoles per litre. So you can hopefully see how which fluid we choose may have some bearing on how quickly the plasma sodium rises and whatever else you feel about the debate around which fluid to use, it may make more sense to avoid 0.9% sodium chloride in the dogs with more severe degrees of hyponatremia so that the gradient between their plasma sodium and what you are actually giving intravenously is a smaller gradient. For the record, I should say that I typically use Hartmann's or an equivalent product in all these hypoA crisis dogs, as opposed to 0.9% sodium chloride. But I should also stress that this is another scenario in which we lack a clinical evidence base, and I'm sure not everyone does use Hartmann's as their default fluid in most cases, as I've said I have. Okay, so on to point number nine. Now, if you are somebody that only does out-of-hours work with no ongoing interaction with the patients or their carers after your episode of care, then this may be a little bit less relevant, but I still think it's very important. And this is the issue of client communication and education. Addison's disease is a lifelong non-curable disease. As far as I know, there are no reports of primary hypoA just spontaneously resolving. So it's very important that pet carers understand what they will be taking on in terms of the need for lifelong medication and regular monitoring. And that they need to be alert to times when their dog either may be about to or may already be experiencing stress that could precipitate a crisis. Okay, and then point 10, which is last but definitely not least, prognosis. The prognosis associated with canine hypoA is actually pretty good and reports suggest that in many cases the dog ends up dying or being euthanized because of another non-related problem. But of course this prognosis is dependent on the ability of the dog's family to provide him or her with the necessary care and is therefore intimately linked to the last point that I made about client communication and education. So that brings me to the end of this episode. I hope that you found it interesting and useful as a refresher. It is just a wee bit shorter than the last episode. As always, if you would like a transcript of today's episode, then visit the website at vetecsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash 10 or look for the link in your podcast uh, player. 
And can you do me a favor, please? Can you please go over to iTunes and leave a rating and review comment for the podcast? I would really appreciate that because I really love to know what you guys think of the podcast, whether you're finding them useful or not, and so on. Because otherwise, I could just happily keep creating and creating podcasts and not know whether anyone's actually learning from them or not. And, you know, based on the reviews that I've received so far, obviously they've been very encouraging and people are very uh, encouraging in saying keep going and so on. But it'd be really great to get as much feedback as possible so that I can have some direction about, you know, the course I'm going to take with these podcasts. The next episode of the podcast will be in two weeks' time. And until then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast. Please share your thoughts and comments on www.veteccsmalltalk.com or hit us up on social media. Until next time, keep up the small talk and the jibber-jabber.